Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero-emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about Disney and the death of cinema, Twitter's new changes to stop tweets going viral and our favourite razor and blade companies. So a few podcasts ago, we were talking about the latest Apple event and the host of new services that the company had unveiled, including the so-called Peloton killer. What was particularly strange about that event, though, was the fact that there was no new iPhones unveiled. This week, however, Apple finally unleashed its new lineup of iPhones on the world. And it's, well, to say underwhelming might be a bit of an understatement. Um, Emma, did you stay up and watch the iPhone unveiling earlier this week? Yeah, I did. And actually, uh, well, I watched it. I don't know if it was live. I watched it on Apple TV. Um, and yeah, it was quite underwhelming. I think what was most striking about it was the absence of an audience, which we're well used to seeing at these events. But uh, there was one small feature in another in an otherwise fairly boring lineup of iterative changes on the products. And it was uh, that the glass on the iPhone is now four times tougher then on the iPhone 11 and is far harder to break and I particularly like the design uh, style that they went back to I can't recall which uh, the, the iPhone just before Steve Jobs passed away had a nice steel rim around the edge and they've reinstated yeah. that and it was a, it, it was a design style I particularly liked but I mean, listen to me. That's what got me excited. You know, the edge of the phone and the glass is tougher. I've never broken my screen. Um, yet I was delighted to hear it suddenly, you know, <laughs> they've cured that problem for me. Yeah, it was kind of, I think, like, from uh, inside the phone point of view, there was, you know, mentions of 5G and things like that, which is all a bit expected. Rory, does the kind of general apathy we're seeing about this new lineup of iPhones, does that say a lot about the shift in Apple's business we've seen recently where things like services and AirPods are, are taking precedence? Um, before we get into that, can I just say that I'm in a very bad mood with Apple at the moment? <laughs> right, um, Because recently my pretty new macbook air has fallen victim to this keyboard issue that i'd read about so much online but i'd never actually experienced myself and it's just horrible it's the worst thing ever i can't stand it and on top of that they made me upgrade to ios was it 14 and now now i have a lot of widgets that i don't want and my phone battery lasts about 10 minutes so they're not in my best books at the moment i don't know why it's always around apple events that i get really angry with them for some reason but but maybe that just brings it out of me at the event, yeah, like, as you said, Emma, can I say, like, let's use this COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse for Apple to kill the in-person live events. Let us please forever banish those absolute fanboy love fest to the Allens of time. They were so awkward and weird. <laughs> and this is just a much, <laughs> like, the the remote video version is just so much better. 
Um, and the event, an event happened. There was new phones. They really pumped the whole idea of 5G out there and then strangely announced a feature that would automatically turn it off when it wasn't needed to preserve battery life, which kind of suggests to me that maybe we don't need 5G as much as people think we might need 5G. Um, and one of the weirdest things that they announced by far was that uh, that in order that they were like, five G is going to make your data more secure, and it's like, how is it going to make it more secure? You won't have to connect to public Wi-Fi spots as often. Which, yeah. like, sorry, when was the last time you connected to a public Wi-Fi spot? Yeah. Like, my four G phone is so much faster than any public Wi-Fi spot I've ever been on. So I don't know where they pulled that security feature of five G out of their um, pockets, for want of a better word. <laughs> <laughs> Good save. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and then, then they were nice. The other thing I noticed was they had the um, the HomePod Mini, which is just kind of a, a Amazon Echo competitor that was kind of expected and didn't really seem that exciting. But I did notice that they, at the very end, they were like, use the HomePod Mini to listen to music on Apple Music or your favorite podcasts or, or radio on Heart Radio or TuneIn. And you can also listen to Pandora or Apple Music. And then they stopped yeah. talking. So <laughs> there's a notable uh, absence there <laughs> of companies that aren't working on the HomePod Mini. Uh, and I think that was probably the kind of the only takeaways I took from the whole event. Um, I've talked so long now on that rant, I've forgotten what your question was. Yeah, well, maybe we're, this is the sign to move on. <laughs> Let's talk about Disney. <laughs> Um, so earlier this week, Disney announced a major restructuring to its media segments that could tell us a lot about the future of entertainment in a post-COVID world. The company is centralizing its media business into a single organization that will be responsible for content distribution, ad sales, and Disney Plus, its streaming service. In a statement, CEO Bob Chapek said, Given the incredible success of Disney Plus and our plans to accelerate our direct-to-consumer business, we are strategically positioning our company to more effectively support our growth strategy and increase shareholder value. Um, Emmett, what what do you think about this move by Disney? Is is it is it something that actually matters to the business, or is it just the kind of an, an internal moving around to people? I think it's like Rory said about Apple possibly using this as an excuse to uh, to clear out the auditoriums for Apple events. I think that a lot of businesses are using coronavirus to restructure elements and business units appropriately for what they've learned. And I think that broadly what I heard from Disney in the last week is something I think is, is good. I think they're, they are very much aligning themselves with where the future world is headed. And as you know, there was some activist pressure for them to um, stop paying dividends and start to reinvest that cash into the development of streaming services. And again, I w I'm completely behind that as a suggestion. And I, yeah, I, I was quite happy with what I heard, but I thought the, the bigger consideration from the whole piece is what lies in the future of cinemas and where yeah. our cinema houses actually headed. Absolutely. And I, I think like the, the too long didn't read of, of all this bluster was they're putting all their effort now or even more of their effort behind Disney Plus. And it kind of sounded to me like, you know, they released Mulan, their, their, one of their more recent movies, um, direct to consumer. And it kind of said to me that Disney are, are, are maybe giving up on the idea of theater releases. How, how are cinemas going to react to this? And what do you think is the future is there? 
Yeah, well, I was reading the head of content at Variety magazine said that in relation to cinemas, that the room was already on fire. COVID just poured lighter fluid around the house. And I suppose where he's coming from is that pre-coronavirus, you know, the cinema, the sector was squeezed by changing tastes that were being, I suppose, augmented by streaming services that are highly affordable. There's better home hardware in the form of TVs and surround sound and all that kind of stuff just wasn't there 10 years ago. So um, studios and distributors and cinemas still want predictability about release campaigns. But we have no real idea when it will be safe to go back to the cinema. It sounds like a trailer for Jaws. But when will we have a safe vaccine and when can we all head back to the cinema? And then to make matters worse, apparently as a result of the delays to big releases like uh, the latest Bond movie, I can't remember what it's called. Is it No Time to Die? Is that what it's called? Yeah, some, latest, some kind yeah. of abstract start re- like that. Yeah, but as a result of the delays to these big releases, they're being pushed out to 2021. However, there could be just as likely to face losses next year because the calendar is going to be really, really busy. So the likelihood, you know, if you release a blockbuster is it's only going to have a week or two headlining before the next one comes along. So I I do think cinemas as an investable entity at the moment are still too uncertain. I've been looking at IMAX over and over again in the hope that I could find a bottom point. But, you know, a bit like the cruise industry or hotels and everything else that's hurt, you know, some will rise again, but it is going to be ugly in the meantime. Well, you said the the room was on fire for cinemas there and, you know, Cineworld effectively closed all of its UK and US locations again last week after reopening them. Thanks to the delay of that James Bond movie, AMC Cinemas came out earlier this week to say that they're staying open, but they expect that they could run out of cash by the end of this year. So it, it really doesn't look good for cinemas. Rory, do you think that Disney Plus can can replace cinemas f- for Disney? You know, do you think that direct to consumer streaming service will ever replace the the magnitude of a of a theatrical release? Well, just as as you mentioned, when you talk about Cineworld, there as as we're recording this on Twitter, there's rumours that AMC are talking currently about um, filing for bankruptcy. Uh, but to answer your question, Bob Chapek was on CNBC last night. He was asked the question whether this new reorg meant that Disney were abandoning cinemas. I don't know if they use the word abandoning, but, and his response was, we're going to put the customer first. Uh, so take from that what you, what, <laughs> what you will. Mm. I note that they are going to release um, their new Pixar movie, Soul, exclusively mm. on Disney+, Plus, which, you know, that basically means the 100% of the margin goes to Disney, and uh, that's a good product uh, or a good um, business to have. But, you know, the whole point of Disney really is that they've got all this incredible IP, right? And they just want to make as much money from it as possible. So Disney is, I think, a lot of the times quite agnostic to how that money is made. They've got a limited amount of IP, but very good IP. And if the opportunity to put it into the cinema and make big box office dollars was there, I think they would do it. I don't think because they can still make money off it from Disney Plus, you know, a month later. That's that's not a problem. It's the whole business model is designed to try and maximize the amount of revenue you can, you can get out of each um, piece of IP. And, and what we talked about with Disney Plus before is like, you know, when we think about Netflix, Disney Plus and Netflix are obviously very compared, but Netflix's only business is streaming. That's all they do. That's So they have to make the streaming business work and it has to be profitable. Whereas what Disney can do is Disney can go, right, we can have this streaming service. 
it doesn't have to be profitable necessarily. I mean, they've said it's going to be profitable by 2024, but it, you know, that's not the point. The streaming service is all about getting people into the Disney ecosystem and getting that IP in front of people's eyeballs. You know, keep in mind that in 2019, Parks uh, brought in 25 of their $70 billion in revenue. So the only reason people are going to those parks is because you're getting content from the eyes of younger people who then want their parents to bring them to, to Disneyland. Um, so it all works as kind of a whole unit, you know, the, that's why Disney plus is such an interesting move for them because it's not like Netflix. It's a totally kind of different thing. It's all about repurposing that IP, getting in front of people and get, and keeping people within the whole Disney ecosystem, uh, over the course of their lives, you know, and you know, Disney owns childhood, whether that's a good thing or bad thing, um, you know, that's, that's just the way it's, it's going to stay. It's, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. So adding more units to the business and getting the content out as many ways as possible uh, is is their big long-term play. Yeah, just to, just to reference another statement by Chapek in probably the same interview with CNBC, he said, I would not characterize this as a response to COVID. I would say COVID accelerated the rate at which we made this transition, but the transition was going to happen anyway. It's really going back to, Rory, something you've mentioned before is that in the last 10 months, 10 years worth of change has happened. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's the, the thesis we've been operating on for the last year, which is that COVID is an accelerator. It's, it's making everyone jump 10 years ahead in terms of what their plans were. Businesses that hadn't planned to, you know, instill remote work or had, you know, had kind of tiptoed around the idea are now doing it full time. Companies that had kind of long-term integration plans with various cloud-based applications are pushing the button right away to make sure that they're, uh, you know, that they're able to operate in a COVID environment. Um, and internet penetration has doubled pretty much over the course of six months. So people who, you know, had kind of used e-commerce once or twice when they couldn't find things in the store have gone, right, well, now I have to use e-commerce for everything. I have to get my groceries delivered. I have to get anything I want to buy it has to go through e-commerce. And so it's, you know, it's just being a big push forward in terms of a lot of how we use technology and it's going to make a lot of companies very wealthy over the coming couple of years. Absolutely. So speaking of companies pushing forward, then let's move on to Twilio, who announced earlier this week that they're to buy the technology startup segment in an all stock deal worth $3.2 billion. Twilio, a cloud communication platform that allows companies like Uber, Lyft and Stripe to message their customers with things like verification codes and stuff, will use Segment to create a more personalized, timely and impactful engagement across customer service, marketing, analytics, product and sales, according to CEO Jeff Lawson. Um, Rory, what's the story with Twilio? <laughs> Just to throw you a broad uh, question. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going I, to talk briefly about the actual acquisition because I wasn't really too familiar with the company segment before this. And I kind of, even though I've read up a bit about it since, I think probably a longer kind of daily insight next week might be better to, to really uh, nail down what they've done here. But essentially um, segment is a customer data platform that the whole point of which is to, is to grab data from multiple different sources and combine it in one place. It's uh, one of the things I quite like about it is that both Jeff Lawson, who's the CEO of Twilio, and Peter Reinhardt, who's the co-founder and CEO of Segment, are come from a developing background. So Twilio is very much a platform for developers, and the combination of these two found, you know, founders who came from the world of development seems like it makes sense. They seem like they're kind of on each other's uh, page. Um, and what the kind of, I suppose, the big picture of, of what this acquisition is going to do is it's going to help Twilio 
give uh, its customers a really good look at their customers, essentially. And that's that's very important for how you message to people and how you communicate to people, you know, how you uh, convert people in, in, in a kind of say, sales cycle uh, in particular. But, but just on the deal itself, so Segments was a private company that had kind of some big uh, backers like Alphabet, for example. Um, and in its last kind of private valuation was, was at around 1.5 billion, and that was in April 2019. So Twilio have paid 3.2 billion for them. Uh, Twilio have done it all with stock, um, which is a very good idea because Twilio shares are up about 180% in the last 12 months. So, you know, when your shares are up 180% in 12 months, that's a good time to go out there and use some stock to buy up a company, particularly one that was founded uh, in April last year, or, or sorry, not founded, but was last funded at 1.5 billion uh, in April 2019. If we look at where kind of cloud stocks have been going since April 2019, I would say they're getting a pretty good deal with this. You know, that sounds like they're uh, they're buying, they're using basically cheap cash to buy something that, you know, in the, in the public markets, if it was gonna follow along with the other cloud computing businesses, you would think would be worth an awful lot more than it was last privately funded at. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a it's an interesting deal for Twilio. I'm interested to kind of dig in a bit deeper to see like what the synergies between the two businesses are. But the stock markets reacted very positively. Um, Twilio shares were up was six or seven percent the day it was announced. And yeah, it's, I mean it's definitely expanding their total addressable market. You know, they are now going to be going into the businesses with a much more rounded package of how to understand your customer, know who you're targeting, and be able to target them as well as possible. So. Um, Twilio, I think, has just become our a six bagger for us. Um, I'm a shareholder. I like the business a lot. Um, and yeah, all looks good from here. Is this one of Twilio's first acquisitions, or do they have a good history with acquisitions? No, they bought a, a, a email focused kind of marketing company called SendGrid uh, about two years ago. Now, I would say uh, that seems to have worked out quite well. The businesses seem to have aligned quite well on that. So. Um, yeah, no, they've, they've, they've made acquisitions before. It's, you know, Twilio is one of those businesses that is really in super fast, high growth mode. Uh, I think they're growing revenues at like 60% at the moment. They're still not free cash flow positive, by the way. So growth is is very important to them. Um, and, you know, there has been some kind of suggestion that the, the shares have been quite diluted over the years with acquisitions. Uh, but, you know, it's all about getting the business to start making money, making making profits, and, and if it can, it's got a massive opportunity ahead of it. You know, this is a, a world, like we talk about in COVID, communication is very important for businesses to be able to talk to their customers, to be able to uh, sell to their customers, and Twilio is kind of one of those companies at the forefront of that. So it's um, it's, a, it's a share I hold and one I'm happy to keep holding. Yeah, you, you really sound like the cat that got the cream. <laughs> You're speaking there at the end. <laughs> let's move on then um so obviously as as probably half the world knows we're drawing closer and closer to november 3rd and the 2020 u.s presidential election unsurprisingly in the run-up to this social media platforms are falling under the spotlight again after their alleged influence in the election the last time around this week twitter announced that it was introducing a raft of new features to the site to try and limit its influence on the upcoming election these changes include things like labeling tweets that include premature claims of victory or tweets that are intended to incite interference in the election making it harder to find tweets from political figures with more than 100,000 followers that are labeled as misleading 
But one of the biggest changes that they've added is that users will now be encouraged to add their own commentary before retweeting a tweet from somebody else. You won't be forced to quote tweet, but the company says that by asking people or adding that extra step um, in asking people to add their own commentary will create friction that it hopes will increase the likelihood that people will add their own thoughts, reactions and perspectives to the conversation. Um, Emmett, I'm going to come to you with this first. Um, rolling out a feature like this about three weeks before an election, um, do you think Twitter's really doing enough to, to regulate itself in, in what is going to be a very difficult time for all social media platforms, I imagine? Yeah, when I saw the announcement, it made me think about like, you know, you want to grow like wildfire until the fire gets too wild. I mean, what Twitter has is such a classy problem. I'll give them that. Um, but how dare they make me stop for one second to make me think. If I'm going to retweet, <laughs> I'm going to do it right now. Don't make me think. A bad actor, not good. So, um, you know, I, I it makes perfect sense to me to at least to decelerate um opinion at a time when everybody is entrenched in what they believe like we don't i think um, the the three of us here we're not american uh we we will not benefit or we will not meaningfully uh have an adverse outcome from whoever is elected so but what we can say from watching the u.s elect uh, election from over here is that very rarely, I think never have I seen anyone change their mind on a candidate. So, you know, by broadcasting your opinion, it's very unlikely, I believe, that you'll change somebody else's mind. You'll just port forward your views, which, you know, I think will just inflame others if they don't agree with you. So I do think it's a, it's a moderately responsible step you know, by Twitter, is it's maybe the equivalent of them forcing us to wear a mask, you know, because, you know, they're, they're, what they're trying to do is reduce the viral coefficient, you know, bringing it back to the coronavirus conversation, you know, they want the reproduction rate to drop a little. So when you see a tweet that you agree with, it's very easy to hit a button and then broadcast it to all your uh, followers. I think in these kind of times that are quite fraught, that they're doing what they're taking a step do i think it's enough yeah i do i mean uh like they're they are decelerating it somewhat like i would think most people who use whatsapp have seen in recent months maybe even the last year you can only forward a message so many times without it decelerating and it does decelerate you if where once before you might have forwarded a funny joke to 20 groups you now have to either do it one at a time or i think at most five groups so you know these these things work they slow you down a little you have to be a slightly more uh, considered in what you're doing uh, when in the WhatsApp example you just pick those few people because you're not going to bother doing it again so uh, yeah I thought what Twitter is doing is I thought it was quite responsible I didn't you know there's no great act of parliament about it you know it's it, they're they're doing what they're doing I think with good intent um, sure it's going to cause some people to feel a little bit kind of um, edited but that's not I don't believe the case you can still retweet you're just going to have to stop for a minute yeah, I feel they could have gone. Sorry, I feel they could have gone one step further by um, making you read the article before you retweet it. That would be ideal because so yeah, many yeah. people they just retweet articles that they don't even read, and then all you end up with is the headline stories that you know actually know what's kind of going on in the world. But like, yeah, to Evan's point, like social media, the currency of social media is is anger you know like that's that's where they make their money like it's all about getting people outraged so that they tweet more send more facebook posts so um 
trying to, you know, that, that, that probably doesn't help when you have like, uh, what seems at the moment, a country that's quite, you know, divided. I've, I've never seen kind of more divisive politics in a kind of Western world than we're seeing at the moment. Um, yeah. Well, well, you mentioned there that, you know, social media sites run on, on kind of outrage and anger and they're not so much a conversation between people as a shouting match between people. It, it must, in that case, be a big decision behind the scenes at Twitter to introduce things like this, which will slow down virality and will slow down, you know, a tweet from a certain person going, like firing across the web and going in front of everyone's faces. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hope what doesn't happen is that we all is we end up with just like loads of retweets with someone putting like a period mark before us. Mm. <laughs> people are just trying to like find, find ways. The system. <laughs> yeah, people are yeah. just going to try and hack the system. I suppose like Twitter, to its um, to its credit, I suppose has has come out in the past and kind of tried to at least try to appear to be behaving as the more responsible of the uh, social media companies, particularly in comparison to. Mark Zuckerberg's operations, but yeah. um, well, not... actually, this week, you know, speaking of social media, Facebook came out this week to say that it was banning content from Holocaust denial sites, and I think everyone kind of just went, "Wait, you're not doing that already?" <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they ban? They banned um, QAnon uh, sites as well. Yeah, which was like, you know, the, the, the toothpaste is out of the tooth. <laughs> the the tub, guys. <laughs> like you can't. <laughs> can't put it back in <laughs> yeah absolutely well I, I suppose we all have fun times ahead over the next few weeks to see how this unfolds uh, let's move on then and take a look at some of the things going on in my wall street at the moment so as hard as it is to believe we're staring down the barrel of another earnings season already rory what you lovingly refer to as the weeks from hell um tell you prepare for all that information that's coming your way we've written an earnings season cheat sheet that you can find in the my wall street app right now we're also halfway through another month, and that means that you have the Stock of the Month report and a Stock of the Month podcast to catch up on in the My Wall Street app. I checked just before we came into this recording, and our last four predictions are up 10%, 62%, 30%, and 83% respectively. So you definitely don't want to miss out on our latest pick. You can find that in the My Wall Street app now. And if you're not a My Wall Street subscriber, just remember you can access all of this information as part of your free introductory trial by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Let's move on to Jargon Busters then. And the first question comes in about a company that's actually already in the My Wall Street shortlist, Nautilus. So Nautilus stock is up close to 12-fold this year so far, an incredible rise for a company that really wasn't in a good place at this time last year. Um, what triggered this run for Nautilus, Rory? And do we think that the underlying business model has changed for the better? It seems like what triggered the run was us putting it in the quarantine list. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the day after we added it to this new kind of faded out stocks that we we think the thesis is broken on, things just seem to rocket up. Um, I suppose a huge amount of it was, you know, due to the coronavirus pandemic and the success of other uh, fitness companies that we won't mention here. Um, but <laughs> no, like, so I think like one of the questions we got a lot is like with the dramatic run up in Nautilus, are we going to take it off the quarantine list? Like what if it's, yeah. if it's up kind of 12 fold? And the answer at the moment is no. And the reason for the answer is, the 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 reason we put it there was because the company had was really being run very poorly. Uh, it had dropped something like eighty five to ninety percent from where it had been added. It was consistently coming out with products that weren't selling, and management was essentially running around like its hair was on fire. And it got down to such a low level that it was being traded 
very much like a kind of penny stock. Like you were seeing the stock go up 30% one day, down 40% the next day, up 20% the day after. So people were just kind of trading it back and forth. And it was causing kind of confusion uh, for our users anyway, who were like, what's going on with all this? Why is it go like going up and down so, so much? And so the concept of putting it in quarantine was really to kind of alert users that like, look, we don't consider this like a viable long-term investment right now, particularly the way the stock's being traded back and forth. Um, and like the stock has gone up rapidly, as you've mentioned, but you know, not a huge amount of the business has kind of changed that much. You know, they've, they've kind of got onto the whole uh, connected fitness um, train, but revenue for trailing 12 months is kind of, it's, it's up from where it was the year beforehand. It's not declining rapidly as it was, as it was in the previous years. But the business still, to me, doesn't look like a really great investment. You know, it's it's if I was to say, like, will this company benefit from the coronavirus pandemic? It probably will because gyms are closed and people need to buy home gym equipment. But is this a company I would happily hold for kind of 10 years, given what we saw previously with, with how the company performs? I don't think I'd be very comfortable with that. So, you know, uh, over the next kind of couple of weeks, I think, um, an idea would be to kind of go, we're going to kind of look at the business again, try and look at it with kind of fresh eyes and see is it going, is, is it going to be kind of a long-term winner? But, you know, we don't make decisions on stocks based on how the stock is performing, just how the stock is performing. We make decisions based on how the company is performing, like how the, how the business is actually running. And we don't remove stocks just because they've gone down. We don't buy stocks just because they've gone up. You know, that's a bad way of, of investing. You're, you're, that's how you're going to lose money if you just see a stock that's gone up 100% and think, oh, that must be a great company and, and buy the shares. You really have to see how the underlying business is performing. So stay in quarantine for now and we'll revisit it over the next couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, it very much seems like, you know, this is Nautilus's big chance to, to make some big changes at the underlying company and, and to turn itself around. So be an interesting next few months to keep an eye on that company. Um, let's move on to the next question. And this one is about short ratios. Emmett, I'm going to throw it over to you. Um, what do we mean by a short ratio on a stock? And um, if there's a high short ratio for a company you're looking at, what does that mean? Okay, so let me start by explaining how a short ratio might provide an insight. So basically, a short ratio is used by some investors and I think more likely traders on how company stock price is likely to move. So if a short, if a stock's short ratio is trending up, then it may be a sign that investor sentiment in the company is is going negative or souring. And I guess that's a, a warning. Um, I, apparently, in 2004, an MIT Harvard and Harvard study found that stocks with the highest short interest ratios underperformed by 15% per year on average. So uh, there is something in it. Now, I might tell you that short ratios are something I have never, not one day, not for one minute, considered in my investing life. I'm not saying it's bad information. I'm not saying it's useless information. I'm just saying I have never used it because what you're in fact doing is using the quote unquote wisdom of the crowd. I mean, if generally expertise broadens and narrows when you go to many and when you look at a short ratio you're basically looking at the opinion of a lot of people so anyway a short ratio is also known as the days to cover ratio and it's it's calculated by dividing the number of shares sold short by the average daily trading volume 
okay so for example if a company has 50 million shares sold short and the average trading volume is 5 million shares uh, then its short ratio would be 50 million divided by 5 million which is 10 days and it's that it's that ratio that as you look at its change that indicates if a company is the general opinion is getting more bullish which means the stock is going to go up or more bearish which means stock is going to go down so it's really yeah. it's an insight mechanism that is used more often by traders than long-term investors and, so it, and it's not something did. you generally consider in an investment never I look at it. I mean, I look at it um, every time I invest in a stock, but it has never caused pause. It has never informed me. It passes my eyeballs. I look at it and I go, hmm, there it is. Okay. I have, it doesn't cause me any source of interest or distress. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the last question then. We had a, a listener write into us about Tencent. So as they pointed out, Tencent is an investor in some of the companies we've already shortlisted in the My Wall Street app, like Stone Co and Tesla. So why haven't we added Tencent to the My Wall Street shortlist, Rory? Uh, the, well, the main reason, I suppose, is that it's um, it's listed over the counter as an ADR, which means that the majority of our, our users of the app wouldn't be able to purchase it because our, our brokerage functionality doesn't allow that. So that's that's the, that's definitely the primary reason, um, but you know, like we we get questions in all the time about like why is this great company not in the app? And the truth is, like you know, we just it's it's not that we don't like it's just because the company's not in the app doesn't mean we don't like it. It's we're just uh, we're a small enough team. We we only have so much time to research and look at companies, and we only at the moment only kind of add a new stock in every month. So. A lot of the time, you know, we have a we have a watch list of stocks that we love and, and, and businesses that we really admire that just it, it we will add over time. It's not that uh, company that's not in there is just you know we we have a negative opinion of it. There's plenty of businesses that we talk about all the time that um, would love to have in the app, and just you know we kind of have to go with the, the stock that we kind of feel the most confident in on kind of the the week before we decide to publish. That's just how, yeah. how we operate. Yeah, I, I know in the regular meetings, me, yourself and Emmett have, you know, there's usually five, six, seven stocks kind of at the top of the list for inclusion. And it's it's kind of picking what we think is the best opportunity right now that goes in. It doesn't mean we don't like the other stocks. It's just this is the one we like most right now. Yeah, and there's times when there's a company that's been in there for an awful long time and we're kind of watching it to figure out how how certain elements of the business perform or... And, you know, if, if, we, if we're thinking in, you know, it's rare, but sometimes we do think about kind of the macroeconomic environment as well and think, well, how's this stock going to perform in the future, in this current economy versus, you know, what if things slow down or what if things pick up? And, and you know, like just uh, with coronavirus in particular, that, that watch list has grown massively because obviously, like we talked about earlier, there's been a huge leap forward in companies that, you know, were probably kind of slow, slow, slow growers in an area that was maybe not quite kind of ready for uh, mass mass appeal are now suddenly looking like, you know, vital mission critical elements of, of business. So so the list has grown rapidly and there's been a lot of very interesting IPOs recently as well. We have a kind of self-imposed rule that we don't add companies until they've reported two quarters. So there's, we've got a big list of companies that uh, are there that IPO'd in the last six months that I'd love to get into the app shortly. So. So yeah, that's there's it's there's no re, there's the only reason Tencent's not in is because of that ADR issue. We love the business, <laughs> but uh, if you can invest in it to another medium, you know, take a good strong look at it. 
Uh, yeah. Can I add something to that, uh, Rory? Just so uh, on the subject of ADRs, I think uh, 10 cents ticker is T C E H or H, as they say in America, Y. T E E. It's still a T C E H Y, I think is its ticker. When you see a Y at the end of a ticker, the letter Y, especially a five letter ticker, it's telling you that it's an ADR or an American depository receipt. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, on top of everything that Roy just explained, um, you're actually getting a, a slight amber ish flag that this carries a higher risk as a result of foreign exchange fluctuations because these shares are settled in their home currency. So when you see a five letter ticker that ends in Y, you have an ADR in your hands, which can be a wonderful thing, like 10 cents being a great investment. But um, you do have this extra element of risk, which is currency fluctuations. So you need to have, I think, a reasonable grasp on currency and how it might interplay with the US dollar. As much as I'd love to get into a conversation about foreign currency fluctuations, we have to move on because we're running out of time. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uh, riveting stuff, I yeah, have to give you that. We, we, we might do a podcast special about foreign foreign <laughs> currency fluctuations. Uh, let's move on to the elevator after pitch. We do bad, after we do Badger Watch. To the two listeners that are remaining, let's get elevator yeah. pitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time to wake up now. Uh, here's the elevator pitch. Uh, so an easy one for you guys this week. I asked you to pick your favorite razor and blade company. So I'm not talking about Gillette. I'm talking about the company that adopts the razor and blade model for sales. Rory, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I was actually just, as we were kind of talking about this the other day, I'm currently in not my actual home, but my, my parents' home and, and they don't have, they have an espresso machine. And I went there, which is kind of, it's called Green Mountain in America, I think. It's a similar yeah. company. And I went in and they charged me 60 bucks for a few boxes of coffee. So that's a great razor blade model. Uh, it's not a, 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 um, a company we, we can invest into our app, I don't think. But uh, no, the one I, I was going to choose... was definitely floated, by the way, Rory, and Keurig or something, was, the coffee maker, yeah. Yeah, it was, was taken private by uh, yeah. Jab, I think, at one point. Anyway, yeah. sorry, we're running out of time. I'm going to choose IDEX Laboratories, which is... Uh, uh, one of the um, best companies in the in the world in terms of pet care. So what IDEX does is they sell these diagnostic machines into um, vets' offices, and then they charge the vets for the various kind of uh, strips that they use for testing dogs, for dogs and cats for all sorts of diseases. Uh, it's a brilliant business. Uh, first uh, introduced to me by Jason Moser, who we interviewed last week. And it's been a great winner for us since we added it, and uh, a really great stable business to get in on the whole and humanization of pets movement that we've talked about several times over the, over the past couple of years. Absolutely. Emmett, your favorite razor and blade company? Mm, I'm going to go with Tesla because you pay a decent amount of cash for the car, but then you need to pay a tenner a month to keep it cool. And I'm also picking it because we very nearly didn't mention it today. And I just thought, hey, what the, we didn't talk about Tesla. So when you buy a Tesla, you know, there's a lot of excitement when you get into the car. Um, my wife bought one. We were all in the car having a look. And um, then we realized you pay a tenner a month to keep it cooler. I think I don't know what happens. It turns into like a 1978 Trabant or something. I don't know. If what, you don't what, pay do you mean by, what do you mean by keep it cool? Like the AC is a tenner a month? <laughs> No, no, actually, so it has things like Netflix and his telemetry and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, and uh, cool, all... like... Yes, keep it cool. <laughs> Not... No, I mean, keep it... Uh, what's, what's the cool word for cool? 
groovy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it keeps it kind of um, keeps some of the features going, and you have to pay a tenner a month. And as I said, if you don't, you it turns into I don't know, nineteen eighty three Volvo S four. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to accuse Elon Musk of being a massive crook there, charging ten euro a month for AC in your car. <laughs> you do not, you James, do not need that to call him a crook. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so that's it from this week's stock club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. If there's anything you'd like us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter as always. That's at My Wall Street HQ, or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's p o d at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on it'll really really help us out that's it from us here today we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing this episode of stock club is brought to you by hyundai restart your journey towards a greener world with hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at hyundai.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.